0: Welcome to Dr. Cindy Speaks. Regular musings and reflections on politics, current events, and life as a congressional candidate. Dr. Cindy Banyer is a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, our community. She's running for the people of Southwest Florida, trying to flip Florida 19 from red to blue. Listen as she speaks truth to power and gets real about being a mom and a candidate. Hello there, everybody. This is Dr. Cindy Bienier with Dr. Cindy Speaks. We are recording this podcast live at 2.13 p.m. on October second, 2020. And we have a very interesting day here and a very interesting guest and very timely topic here for us for this podcast today. So the Biggest news going on in the world has been the coronavirus, COVID-19, for the past, what are we going on, 10 months now? And we thought it was a big deal when on Monday of this week, I believe, Governor Ron DeSantis threw open the doors to the economy in the state of Florida, saying that everybody should just do whatever they want and just keep things going and we thought that was a big deal and it was pretty crazy and we're waiting essentially now for the cases to spike up as we know they will because uh he also by the way made it really difficult for localities to enforce mass mandates so that's a whole other issue but that's not even the biggest issue in COVID-19 today. The biggest issue is, of course, that now Donald and Melania Trump have both tested positive for COVID-19. We got that information very late into the evening yesterday at about 2 a.m., just about 2 a.m. October 2nd. I still happen to be out because I work all day and all night, but I got the news that they had both tested positive. And this came on the heels of earlier in the evening it being announced that their close aide, Donald Trump's close aide, Hope Hicks, being tested positive for COVID-19. And then the speculation began and all the people that they had been around without a mask over the past week or two started to really come into focus. Now, of course, for me personally, I immediately went to my opponent byron donalds who had been in the white house last wednesday and took a picture with donald trump very close proximity to him and then did a debate with me the very next day where we were definitely not six feet apart from one another and included handshakes and he of course did not have a mask so given the trajectory of this Virus. It it still is within the realm of possibility that Byron Donalds could have contracted the virus from Donald Trump while he was in the White House with him last week, and could have even potentially uh, passed it off to myself and any other number of constituents around Southwest Florida. And this is a very big concern for me. So what I immediately did um, once I learned the news was call on my opponent Byron Donalds to immediately get. Tested for COVID nineteen, given his stance on not wearing a mask and just being super confident that because his family is healthy, that none of the rest of us matter. And I encouraged him to immediately go get a test, and so that we know, and so those of us who have been exposed to him can then protect ourselves i have not seen any indication on any of his social media or anywhere else around the media that my opponent byron donald's is going to be getting a covid 19 test but myself i just to be safe i was tested with a rapid test earlier this afternoon so i am waiting on those results as we speak Um, because it's important for me to know if i need to be quarantining myself because of exposure to byron donald's who had been exposed to trump Um, and then also to make sure that I am protecting my family, uh, given the fact that my daughter, my youngest daughter is just coming out of a period of vulnerability. And as a mom, I just don't want to take any unnecessary, um, risks. So that's where we are today. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about this, but let's get my guest for today into the studios, Dr. Jesse McCann, who I see entered the live studio here. So. All right. I see our guest, Dr. Jesse McCann, is calling in here. Let's get him into the studio here. Hi, Dr. (laughs) McCann. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Had a bit of a shock when I woke up this morning, as I think we all did. But, um, you know, just uh, working on distributing more masks and such around my community and getting the word out that this pandemic is still here. And uh, we need to be careful. Uh, You know, we need to protect ourselves and our loved ones. And uh, we need to keep ourselves virus, uh, the virus under control so that we can keep the economy running even at its sort of dilapidated state right now. So,
0: mm-hmm. um, yeah, well, yeah, I know it's been a crazy morning and I actually was supposed to be doing an event on behalf of the Biden campaign this morning that got canceled because uh, Joe Biden uh, in a real gesture of humanity and civility has decided to just put a pause for a moment on, you know, campaigning and, and things like that, uh, given the gravity of the situation with the president of the United States having contracted COVID-19. So well, I think um, he's
1: also being responsible because he was at, everyone saw him at the debate and, you know, uh, we, even, I guess I, I got I was initially afraid of that debate because I guess with the way it was televised, it looked like the candidates were much closer to each other without masks on. You know, when you look at the overall photos now, it looks like they were 12 or 14 feet apart. But um, it's still, you know, it's a significant risk. And I think he's doing the responsible thing by getting tested frequently and, uh, you know, taking a pause to campaigning. And that's gentlemanly. And uh,
0: I applaud him for that. Absolutely. Well, so let's talk about um, you and me in Florida. So th- it's kind of an interesting story how you and I got connected. I was doing what candidates do, which is, you know, call time, calling people and asking for support. And uh, Dr. McCann came up on my call list and he sent me some PPE because he thought it was important to have uh candidates like me be able to go out into the community and be able to talk to people and be safe. So he had sent me some masks early on and that was very um, fortunate for me to be able to have that kind of support. And so we've uh, stayed connected and I've just recently got another chance to speak with him. And he has an amazing story based on his experience here in the state of Florida, in the medical community with COVID and trying to get equipment and testing and things like that. So Dr. McCann, why don't you go ahead and just reel us back to to the beginning of this year uh, and what you were doing and then how, how did things start off with you and the fight against COVID?
1: Well, I think in about late January, I um, read an article and I think it was in the New York Times where a Chinese uh, ophthalmologist was sounding the alarm about a strange new uh, pneumonia in Wuhan. And ultimately, he actually perished from it. His name was uh, Li Wenliang. And um, that's when we started to learn about, I guess it was January 23rd, the world started to learn about COVID and sort of the story broke loose from China. And I read a lot about it, especially because it seemed as if the um, eye clinic he he worked in he worked in an eye clinic and he got infected from one of his patients so I immediately you know wanted to make sure that um I could run a clinic safely
0: well Um, and you you are running you're an ophthalmologist is that right
1: yes Mm -hmm.
0: right so you it was really it was like you know you were hearing a story of somebody in a very similar position to you and it really piqued your interest
1: and he was 38 year old ophthalmologist, and he passed away. And I was 39, 39. So I said, "Well, if a 38 year old can, you know, succumb to this, then I'm at risk too." And um, you know, when it uh, started to hit Italy, my cousins, um, I, I was, I would watch the TV uh, from there. My I have a cousin who's a doctor in Italy, and then we really, I think in February, we really started to realize what a you know terrible thing this was, and. Yeah. Um, I had had hoped that, you know, it would, I was worried that it would come here, but, you know, we didn't have any evidence for a bit. And, um, but, you know, we have a lot of uh, people that go to Europe on vacation on river cruises and such. And so I started to be concerned that we should, you know, be screening more. And um, Mm -hmm. when it hit New York, which is uh, where I grew up and where I trained uh, medically, you know, then the alarms really sounded. And um, we, at that point... New York was crying out for help because the hospitals were being overwhelmed. They didn't have adequate PPE. And we saw in uh, Spain especially, Italy had problems initially, but um, in Spain initially they were running around in garbage bags. And we had this Mm -hmm. disconnect where the heads of hospitals in Spain or even in New York City were saying, oh, we have plenty of PPE. And then you'd see the video of people wearing hefty bags. And you said, "and." Mm -hmm. Uh, the CDC told healthcare workers to put a scarf on. And, you know, it was getting, it was very scary at that time. So I started to, on my own, just try to acquire PPE for my staff and for um, my patients and for the clinic so that we could maintain safe operation, especially, um, you know, through the the pandemic. And then uh, I had the experience of, you know, in the end of February, when the virus finally reached West Florida, um, you know, then we had to Make sure we could get adequate testing, and I was involved with uh, Sarasota and Charlotte County um, uh, health departments in terms of trying to get those initial tests. And yeah. you know, we had some tests that weren't so reliable, and it was there were a lot of unknowns. Um, and uh, you know, it was a, a strange time. It was almost a magical time because I remember, you know, calling. I would wait up to, until late at night to call factories in Asia to try to get uh, masks and people would Mm. be confiscating them at the border. And it was just a very, uh, you know, it felt like a a struggle and every shipment that came of PPE was amazing. And then, you know, early on, before this got political in March, we, I was just uh, amazed by how the local community came together. And Mm. I had my patients making masks and I told them to uh, sewing masks in, in their homes and the, uh, retirement communities in uh, Charlotte County in Northport and, um, you know, donating them to, to us. And I had an auto body shop down uh, in near Naples uh, donate face shields for my team. And we're still using mm. them, you know, that they made uh, with the plastic and the uh, cutting equipment that they had, it was a, a auto customization shop. And so mm. we really did um, it, and uh, use the local community as best as possible. We had uh, local uh, factories making cosmetics start to turn out hand sanitizer and, and hmm. uh, local distilleries in Tampa. We picked up, um, we picked up several gallons of sanitizer from there because everything, you know, we, we all recall the weeks without toilet paper. And so we yeah. really were caught by surprise by this whole thing. And for a while I was really impressed just by how everyone came together. And then unfortunately, I, I don't know why we decided to act a little more divisive about it. But then, you know, um it was our responsibility as doctors to try to create safe protocols to maintain healthcare so people could continue getting treatment and uh for and so I read everything I could and drove around distributing manuals that I downloaded and printed off the internet to the various hospitals and you know, the attitude back in March was whatever you know, I'm going to listen. And that mm-hmm. was you know, that was a, and I think early on in the pandemic, in that time, we avoided getting infected by the same first wave that hit New York so calamitously, Mm -hmm. because we we initially shut down a bit and try, uh, people were careful. And then, you know, through the summer, we had some, we had the wave in Florida, which was unfortunate. But Mm -hmm. um, now I worry about a second wave, especially as people start migrating down from northern communities that have high rates of transmission. So,
0: yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that nostalgic time back in the way back where we had a fighting chance against this Mm -hmm. thing, because I agree with you and I saw that, too, in our community and everybody was recognizing the threat and, you know, saying, hey, let's, you know, do what we can. Stay home. Shut down. Masks, mm-hmm. hand sanitizer, all of that kind of stuff. And it, it really did take a turn. I I, I saw that too. Um, and you know, you could say there's fatigue in a in a couple other parts of it. And you know, I just want to compare that to my previous experience living through a pandemic, which this is actually my second SARS pandemic. I lived through SARS uh, one in 2003 in Taiwan, and mm-hmm. um, there was this. You know, there was a very different different attitude that people took during that time. Um, And it was much earlier on the threat. And I think that's where we in the United States kind of missed the ball. Like we were, you know, so early on just saying, oh, it's not a big deal. It's not going to happen. It's not going to, we're not going to have to worry about this, that we missed that opportunity to do some of the simpler things to prevent the spread, such as early adaption of ma- masks, early adoption of social distancing, um, better cleaning practices and hygiene practices in public spaces, you know, and that could have all been done ahead of shutting down, which is exactly what Taipei did mm-hmm. before they shut down in 2003. I will also say that I like what you said about the feeling of information sharing, because that's another thing that has a, is a theme, um, and and was an idea of why the WHO, the World Health Organization, had been created, and that was so that there was a space to share information. And I know amongst people in the public health sector as well as the public administration sector that this kind of knowledge, getting it out and adapting as quickly as you can, to the best possible information um, is really key in terms of policy and what people do in response to pandemics. And I know that there had been some ad hoc groups around the world that started, and funny enough, they were using like WhatsApp, Right. Um, I had I had sat in on a, um, a Brookings Institute webinar on this and they were actually using groups that they had created uh, for the sustainable development goals uh, to discuss how they were the information that cities and municipalities around the world were getting uh, about handling the COVID-19 because that information transmission is key and it's one of the reasons why we the, there was the creation of the WHO so to help facilitate that. Not perfect, but helpful. Um, so... I just want to make that pitch because, you know, the WHO, to a certain extent, has been made out to be this boogeyman in all of this, and they're really not. And I don't think that the general population can really has a great appreciation of just how important information, information sharing is when it comes to controlling a pandemic. So maybe tell us a little bit about that, too.
1: Sure. I mean, and we, you know, this idea that the WHO is a foreign organization, I mean, we were the leaders of the WHO. We right. haven't, we didn't uh, appoint someone to it. So the fact that, you know, other countries were involved more uh, predominantly in the WHO is that's because we stood back. We, we kind of did, decided not to participate for some reason. Right. And um, so we didn't have a voice. You know, we just, we just sat that one out and we could have had a voice early on. Um, mm-hmm. But this is, I, I have personally felt overconfident during a pan, uh, an epidemic myself when 2015 I was working in New York and I, I got, rightfully I got spooked though because it, that was during the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. And I was a little bit worried because, you know, we saw patients in the clinics from all over the world and eye symptoms are presenting sign, but some of the public health questions that they had us ask, the cDC had people ask every time you went to a doctor's office or any office they'd ask they'd say, "Have you traveled to West Africa in the last fourteen days?" right That was the mm-hmm. question that they'd start out, and do you have these symptoms and you know after the four hundredth time of someone asking that, I said, oh, "No, <laughs> no, I didn't but then not only did um, did uh, the person that brought Ebola to New York was a thirty six year old doctor. Mm. You know, uh, and who had traveled to West Africa to do mission work and, you know, brought the infection that, but also he went to a bowling alley where everyone had to be tested for Ebola afterwards. And I had gone to that bowling alley a week before, fortunately not the same night. So I said, mm. oh wait, you know, we're, we really all are on a very connected planet. And that kind of spooked me into mm. um, realizing that these things can travel very quickly. And so knowing everything, uh, information yeah. sharing and collaboration, is key and um you know i found that the doctors in china hong kong uh, taiwan and uh japan and korea were very very transparent early on i mean the virus information was published on january 23rd so Mm -hmm. they you know we really knew quite a bit back then and that it was bad you know we didn't know how bad exactly and some you know in some cases it was still evolving so it was just it was an unknown but um you know, I, I, this, as far as a scientific aspect, I've seen everyone being super collaborative on the science and medicine side. Now, you know, when it comes to the interaction with the other systems, that's where we're having trouble now, because some people are trying to discredit things that are just, frankly, established facts, you know, that this is a virus, and it's real, and it doesn't care who you are, and Uh, it can transmit through the air and through close contact Mm -hmm. and droplets and air Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I think that's really, um, and, you know, we, I see a parallel also when we look at water quality and red tide and the green Mm -hmm. slime, you know, there are many factors that can cause it. Not, there's not one person that's necessarily to blame. Um, In some ways, red tide and and the green slime are cyclical. Like they have, they happened before. Right. Play, epidemics happened before. You know, my, for the whole history of humanity, they've happened. So, but we have to figure out how do we best deal with it, and that's when you have to take communicate between policy and scientists and physicians and uh, businesses. Who you know, everyone plays a part. So,
0: yeah, uh, absolutely. I was going to say, this is you're right on with that, and I think that that's undervalued, um, especially with this uh, the particular administration and political climate here in the United States. It's more of a winner take all attitude, and that really crippled us, I think, in the the reaction to the pandemic. And just before we move on to that, because I do want I want you to kind of talk to us about the reaction part of it. But I just want to say that I I understand the criticism of the WHO when it comes to China because that is the, the whole point is that they had cut out Taiwan. So in 2003 during the SARS1, the the panic amongst the administration and the people in Taipei was that they did not get that information, that coveted information, the up to the minute information from the World Health organization from all of the practitioners and scientists around the world, they didn't get it. And so they were at a disadvantage to addressing it. And that was because of the political situation and the two state solution. uh, uh, What is it the? (laughs) One-child policy, yeah, <laughs> the, the one-child policy. But there's, there's, um, you know, they, their idea that Taiwan is a renegade province, but Beijing ultimately has control. So they said to the WHO that all the information only goes to Beijing and none goes to Taipei, even though Taipei is de facto its own country, it has its own currency, passport, president, et cetera. Um, and there was no information coming from Beijing to Taipei. So I and understand and Taipei that Taipei has been a
1: loyal. United States ally and the people of Taiwan are, you know, very committed to democracy and and have similar values. So, you know, we and this was Henry Kissinger's solution to a temporary problem. But for some reason, it's become like gospel now. So.
0: Right. 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 Yeah, and and but that's but that's what they're talking about. Like that's so, and they did the same thing this time, of course, except for Taiwan knew that that's what they were going to do, and so they realized that they had to just sort it out on their own, and they did a great job. And but the, you know, somehow the United States folks who want to scapegoat China for this took that very small piece of conflict that's you know essentially a conflict between those three parties, Taiwan you know, mainland China and the WHO and conflated it to this global conspiracy to allow the virus to spread. In fact, um, a, a, a senator, a woman running for Senate in Georgia tweeted today that Trump and Melania have COVID because of China.
1: Oh, yes. I saw and, the tweet by Lawler, and it was highly, in- yes. you know, and uh, I mean, you know, it's I to blame China and to blame. I mean, you know, they're they're also trying to pin it on on Hope Hicks just because she tested positive before. But you know, this I, I mean, the idea that to react with blame, is, uh, especially you know, and cr- creating these false narratives, uh, we don't even. You know, I've heard so many. Um, how do best put it? Outlandish things in the last uh, year, couple years that. <laughs> Uh, you, you kind of get tired of, you know, batting them down. But, right. you know, I think um, we all can say that this is real and then how do we respond to it? Now, my my immediate concern is protection of the community and my own patients and, you know, and my own work, myself, you know, and my family. And, uh, and how do we do that? We work together, you know, and, and uh, right. I think that's something that's sadly... Lacking and
0: uh, yeah, so tell us about that. So I know when we had spoke before that you were telling me about your uh, procurement of the PPE and but you had some problems with that, didn't you?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we it was there were uh, it was being confiscated at the border. It was being held up in customs. There was disinformation going out that the masks that were uh, made in China were contaminated with the virus. I mean, all sorts of outlandish stuff that they didn't work, that they were bad. So they held up the masks and customs. They were stolen. I had a package of masks that I acquired that was shipped first to Brooklyn and then uh, took, um, was ripped open, and about half were stolen on the way from Brooklyn to Florida. And took mm-hmm. about three weeks. It was UPS second day, or you know FedEx second day air, and it took over a couple of weeks to get here. So you know there was a lot of, there were a lot of shenanigans going on, and um, masks were being confiscated, resold at higher prices by, you know, people that I would say they were, I would call them petty criminals. But um, mm-hmm. you know that, and it was the same thing with uh, if you look at look at toilet paper, something that we all saw you know, the insanity of the toilet paper situation where, you know, you went from the shelves were uh, empty. There was price gouging. All of a sudden you're using some substandard toilet paper and it's all the letter. It's the packaging is from Romania. You know, it's, it was a very strange The (laughs) the supply chain just went completely mad. And um, you know, I, first I tried to acquire, I contacted Honeywell is a major, we all know Honeywell from our air conditioning filters They're a major supplier of N95 masks, along with 3M. And, um, you know, those were impossible to find. They were allocated to really the COVID wards. And people had to reuse their masks for four and five days, and they were disgusting and Mm -hmm. caused... If you look at the Italian doctors from the first wave of the crisis, they have had to have skin procedures because they wore Mm -hmm. these dirty masks to the point where they had multiple skin infections and and such. So I don't... um, you know, we we were creative, and finally, I guess by the end of March, early April, I started getting PPE at a reasonable cost. But and now I, I think, you know, if you try to find a, a mask, you can. But now the problem is adherence, and people, you know, wear, continuing to wear them and, and such. Um, and but yeah, it was very difficult. And there's actually an article in the New Yorker about how um, there was a decision made at the very, at the highest levels of task force with Jared Kushner and such to uh, give PPE supply to uh, young uh, Ivy League graduates so 25 year old people who had no previous experience where what when what we really needed was um, major manufacturers to you know to pull out all the stops and we, we were famous for doing that in the Second World War and that's why we mm-hmm. we won we were able to provide material for the entire world and then suddenly this whole thing, just fell flat, and um, you know, we were stuck in a desperate situation. But yeah. you know, now I have masks, and now I, we, you know, we're we have protocols in place. But you know, and, and so far, I've managed to keep my whole team safe and virus free, even though we see many patients a day. Um, but yeah. it's all based on you know, it's been a concerted effort, and yeah. um, you know, I think that we can't let up until, at this point, until vaccination because, um, yeah. you know, uh, because it's just a little too dangerous. And I don't, and I, my patients are on the older side and, you know, they are vulnerable and they still need to come in and, and have their treatments. So um, that's when, you know, the, re, it, it's sort of not about what you want, but just about the situation that you have. And, uh, but I yeah. think in reality, um, You know, if you look, and it's interesting to see, I've seen the masks that they're selling at CDS and Publix and such. And you'll notice if you look at some people's surgical masks or the ones that you might have, they say Mm -hmm. something, they'll say things like DYD on them. Mm -hmm. DYD is a Chinese car company, Build Your Dreams is the acronym. And they were forced by the Chinese government to manufacture masks using their industrial supply chain. Hmm. So, people are wearing basically buying masks that were authorized with the defense production act of the people's republic of china that then they paid you know were made for 5 cents and now they're paying they're paying a dollar for them at publics and yeah. um, you know that's the uh, that's kind of ironic that you know it's that's- the
0: globalization of the supply chain huh right. um It's so fascinating that you're that you're kind of diving into this, because I I think that the handling of Jared Kushner of the the supply chain response and the PPE equipment early on in the pandemic was described nothing short of an utter failure. And what he was able to actually procure seemed to go to preferred individuals, uh, people that um, were politically loyal to Trump and uh, that they could otherwise buy and curry favors with. But, Janine, yeah. Janine
1: Pirro, Janine Pirro apparently had a role uh, in terms of distributing masks. Um, she would call in and, and order supp- PPE to be sent to various facilities. So, you know. You not, mean not, the lady not, from TV? Yes, the judge Janine Pirro from TV. I, she would, she was, she had the, she was on speed dial with this task force of 20 somethings and would order them to send supplies to, I mean, it's documented in the New Yorker. And this
0: um, is, you know what this is called? This is, (laughs) this is a crony network. This is patronage network. This is, Mm -hmm. and this is what kills me when I look at it. You know, my, my research for my doctorate was on governance around the world. And it was how to design good government systems. And, you know, there are varying levels of sophistication in government structures around the world. And what we see in lesser developed countries with lesser sophisticated types of administrative systems is this patronage type of network. It is how power is distributed very, very early on before essentially we develop a fully functioning rule of law. Um, and you know, it's actually dissuaded once you get to the point of rule of law, because then there are rules and protocols to make it fair and equitable. But the, the, the problem that I really see when I hear stories like that, and basically what we see with the Trump administration kind of overall, when it comes to this is that they invited this, they wanted this because it does, this is, it's, it is the mafia style of things. It is that there's the one guy on top and he controls this network of people and that they have to go through him to get anything. And it's incredibly detrimental to democracy. It's incredibly detrimental to freedom. It's incredibly detrimental to individual rights and equality because you have to be able to curry those relationships to, to get anything and societies that function like that. And we really We're playing with fire when it comes to this. And it's really, it's really troublesome for me to see.
1: And we're looking at something that, you know, there, there's all of a sudden this network of um, influence, you know, confronts reality, which is COVID, or, you know, you look at, you can look at COVID, you can look at a hurricane, you can look at a fire, a wildfire, doesn't really matter, but there's something that's happening and and how do you respond? And, you know, uh, there's a lot of evidence that ventilators were used as, you know, to to secure loyalty. I mean, that and that was early on and masks to a lesser masks and PPE to a lesser degree. Well, you know, Dr. McCann, I can
0: I'll tell you what, just from the data side, when I pull the statistics on that here in the state of Florida, you can tell that that's exactly what happened. We have more ventilators than bed space in places across Florida. That's absolutely the case here in Southwest Florida. We, in, in Lee Health System, there's something like, it's it's a, a, about 20 to 30% more ventilators than we have beds for. And then we don't even have the staff for the beds that at that point too. Well, so I think
1: part of what people don't understand when they say bed, beds, you know, you look at a ventilator as a, a machine, a bed is a uh, you know, everyone has beds in their. House. I have a three-bedroom house. You know, whatever I, you know, I have multiple, I have two beds in the house, but it really a bed in a hospital system is really actually a human thing. It's a care team, and mm-hmm. you know, um, there's a little bit of a uh, – I My I was um, actually I have a license in New York State and Florida, for, and I was on call to go up to New York and um during the immediate part of the crisis and they would call me every morning at eight and uh prepare to deploy me and you know they would ask and I was trying to make I was making concrete plans packing my bags thinking where I could stay if I had a friend with a spare apartment I didn't want to stay at my parents because they have pre-existing conditions which would Mm -hmm. be higher risk so I was trying to just figure out how I could go back safely and would I drive would I and then as you know, I was, I was raring to go because I thought it would be contained to you know New York. And then once it started to come here, I said, I need to stay here. And that's when I made a decision to just, uh, you know, get as much PPE. I sent some to New York. I sent some to, uh, friends all over the country. Um, and, uh, but also, I want to say this, that I went to a network of the other thing that I forgot to mention, I want to mention it, is that I had a network of graduate students from my graduate days that were overseas. And when they found when I asked for masks on a WhatsApp group that we had, or maybe it was WeChat, I don't remember. Um, but they, I just started getting masks from random people from all over the world that they felt <laughs> pity for us. And that's not a situation that I've, I'm used to. I'm used to being, you know. Here we are in a wealthy place, a very fortunate place to live. You know, we were desperate, though, because we didn't have anything. So, um, but what were we talking about? Oh, with the bed. Yeah, you need, you yeah. Know, we need staffing, really, if, um, right. when this continues. And, you know, there's a certain political reluctance to call for help sometimes. Fortunately, right. you know, when the summer happened and we had our big wave, the population here naturally was smaller anyway because of the seasonality. And I think that that saved us quite a bit because had had this hit when we were um, at you know in the middle of season, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, the hospital system could have easily been overwhelmed, and it could still you know that yeah. that is something that we have to prepare for this winter because people are coming back. I, mm-hmm. I was on Interstate seventy five. I can tell you that you see the plates, you see people are coming back for the winter, and um, we need to you know we still we need to make sure that we have what we need to, to survive the winter, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh. Yeah. Lee health, Lee health. I think it was back. It was right after it was in June there, right after the, the Memorial day spike uh, we were at a hundred percent staff capacity. They started reporting that here for us mm-hmm. because they wanted people to understand it. So I think we were so at like something like 80, 90% bed capacity, but we were at, at, staff capacity, 100%. And, and I'll tell you, I've done workforce re- research here in Southwest Florida, and I know that we have massive sort of shortages in ter- and gaps in our medical personnel here uh, for a variety yeah. of systemic reasons, everything from, you know, subpar schools to uh, lack of affordable housing to lack of diversification in a market that makes it really hard for you know, mid-career professionals and their families and their spouses to move here and set up. Um, So that really hurts our medical system overall. I mean, there are things that a lot of folks don't realize. And so what happens for me in my race is my opponent loves to talk about how we have ventilators more ventilators than anything. I'm like, it doesn't matter if you have a warehouse full of ventilators, if you don't have a bed and a, you know the medical team to be able to, to administer it, um, then it doesn't matter. And then I take that a step further because my, my youngest daughter was uh, on a ventilator for 12 days with respiratory failure in 2018 at just over the age of one years old. And I find it nothing short of horrific and offensive that somebody would look somebody dead in the eyes and say well there's enough ventilators like do you it, it, no that's not appropriate that's not acceptable you do not want to be on a ventilator you do not want your family members to be on a ventilator no, not that, only is you there... never
1: get I don't think you get the permanent recovery after a ventilator you have serious right. lung damage for your whole life not to mention yeah. neurological damage cardiac yeah. damage I mean we have to you know be more uh, you know, uh, we have to be more conservative really with the idea that we have, we can fight this. So it's, yeah. it's, we're better, but still, it's still a deadly disease. And, yep, you know, the, the idea that, and we, you don't want people to get on ventilators as a 40 or 50% mortality and probably yep. 99% morbidity, meaning that you're not going to be the same person you were when you uh, were put on the ventilator. So, um, you know, it's, this is, I I also have experience with a, a friend that's on the younger side who contracted a coronavirus postpartum, and um, now is still having symptoms a couple months later, and still having some trouble, still mm-hmm. not feeling great. And this is someone who used to chastise me for not going to the gym at 5am. So, <laughs> you know, this is, it's, uh, I, I think we can't underestimate this. And I don't know if it's machismo or something, but to say that you're strong enough to take on coronavirus, you, no one knows what until they right. get it, how they're going to respond.
0: Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's,
1: like, it's all guessing at this point.
0: And, and honestly, I went round and round with my daughter's hematology oncology team on this because their kind of corporate response from the hospital was, well, don't worry. The cases for children have been pretty mild and we have the capacity to deal with it. And I said, well, that's great. And I'm super excited that you guys are confident in your professionalism. I'm happy for that. I said, but I'm the mother of this child who I already watched have respiratory failure, who I know we do not know, like you said, the lifelong damage to that, that it's even impossible to test her lung capacity because they don't start testing. They, they don't have diagnostics for that until the children are at least six years of age. So I'm sitting here looking at a hundred percent unknown of whether or not this would affect her significantly.
1: There's also something called multi-system inflammatory disorder in children from coronavirus that's kill, that just kills children um, and or causes massive cardiac damage requirement for lifelong oxygen. So uh, also premature birth. So We have to, you know, it, at a certain point when you t- take a look at risks, if you're looking at also including women of childbearing age that could potentially be pregnant, young children, uh children with other conditions but also there is a small segment of people randomly that you know the roulette wheel is just going to you're going to strike a number and and um you know you might have an inflammatory reaction that could be if not fatal disabling so Mm uh i i still am very um, conservative about this i think we should all be extra cautious still Um, and uh you know we have and and to just if we treat it realistically we can uh, we're blessed to live in a mild climate, especially now that the mm-hmm. heat is abating. And we can do a lot of things outside that other people can't during this winter. So we're mm-hmm. fortunate. You know, we yeah. really can. And we can we can social the distance. You know, if you are, you know, as long as you're not, you know, if you are wearing a mask or with your own family member, you can play golf safely. I mean, that's tremendous for people. You know, tennis has been designated as a low-risk activity. So... Mm-hmm. This winter, we're not going to be, we don't necessarily need to suffer, you know, to Mm -hmm. to do this correctly, but we need to choose our activities wisely Um, and also recognize that we can expose, when you look at with, um, you know, the president now having coronavirus and you look at all the people that he was exposed to, that's how we have to think of our own lives. You know, if you go fishing with five different people every day, that's not social distancing. You know, if you're going fishing with the same person and you, you stay isolated, then you're you're fine. So yeah, I I think that's the, uh, the way we have to think again, unfortunately, but yeah. um, yeah.
0: Well, and I want to just, I want to just reel back one moment here on the, you know, the idea that, that, yeah, you could have, a child who gets the multi system inflammatory disease, or, or you could just be one of those very unfortunate people who it affects really significantly. I mean, we had a very popular DJ here in Southwest Florida that was one of the very early victims of it. And he was a young, otherwise healthy man in his late thirties. And he just, he he couldn't tolerate it. And um, he passed. They actually had sent him home from the hospital because mm-hmm. they said he was fine. And then two days later he, he, he was gone. Um, so, but let's, let's just talk about that in terms of what happens. And especially considering these long hauler folks who are seeing, you know, effects months and months and months, we still have a ridiculously high levels of medical bankruptcy in this country. So right. a, as well as low, you know, low levels of coverage here in the state of Florida, because uh, Governor DeSantis and his folks and the other Republicans across the state decided not to Um, engage in the Medicaid uh, expansion. And this is, this is going to be a problem, and it, of course, as it always does, affects the poorest of the poor. We see massive racial discrepancies in this as well. I think it's something like 2.1 times as many Black people die from coronavirus as white people. And um, we have really, this is laying bare some of the issues in our broader healthcare system. Uh, do, what what do you think about that aspect of it when we're talking about coronavirus?
1: I, I think access to healthcare is, is you know absolutely imperative, and we see how important you know health healthcare is right now. Um, you know it was shocking when I moved down here from uh, New York, where they did make the decision to expand Medicaid, and uh, it made Obamacare plans much more affordable. There is significant choice in plans. And um, the premiums were just much lower. Um, so if you weren't making that much money, and it would be for a basic plan, and I'm not talking about anything that I would write home about as being good, but for something catastrophic that could protect, let's say the bread, if a, the breadwinner of a family, uh, if you weren't making that much money, you could get it for about $120 a month for someone in their 30s. That that was pretty good. And here the same plan is $400, which, you know, mm-hmm. it's almost the, the sh- same as the share of someone's um rent and it doesn't uh, it still has a high deductible of around six thousand dollars so mm-hmm. you know it's um now if you get this can also prevent people from going in and getting covid testing or from you know <laughs> keeping them at work when they are ill so it's it's vital to you know health security is really um, imperative to stopping uh, disease and i think that's why you're seeing the rate in the U.S. so high because people, we have our health care tied to our employer. Yep. Many people don't have health insurance or are underinsured to the point where, you know, they're insured if they get in a car accident and are in the ICU and they can, you know, they'll make, meet their deductible. But if they are feeling sick and want to have a test done, it's prohibitive. So, you know, it's, um, I think that's definitely something that we need to look forward to in the next Congress, Congressional term is how we expand the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, they yeah. thought that there are people running that want to reduce health care right now. It's, it, it, I couldn't imagine uh, how they could get any support.
0: Right. And, you know, we had 40 million Americans who lost their job, many of whom probably had a, a insurance tied to their employment. So they became without coverage. And still, 15 million remain unemployed. Those people definitely don't have coverage, and that's that's a big problem. So it's something to look at. And and like, can I just add, as somebody who's lived in two countries with national health care, the 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 mindset shift that takes place among the population when you know that you can have access to affordable care, and and you you just get you just go and get it. That's what the people don't understand here is, is we are at, for as much as we are hindered by our own financial limitations when it comes to healthcare, we are as limited by the complexity of the system that we've built because we don't know. And the thing is, is that there's not a lot of transparency around it. So you don't know necessarily if you walk into a clinic to get a test of any nature, if it's going to be something you can pay for in your bank account there or if it's something you're going to have to take out a second mortgage on your home for right Right. Uh, because you don't know essentially until you get that slapped bill at the end and it's wild right like you don't know what it's gonna be so you so what happens is you err on the side of Caution if you are somebody who's living in a limited means and you go, Well, I don't really necessarily need that right now, so I'm not going to do it because I don't know how much it's going to cost if I go there. So you just don't do it. But if you know that it's not going to bankrupt you, that, it, that you have a reasonable expectation of what that cost is, you're more likely to go. You're more likely to take care of yourself. Um, And that makes us all better. And I think that's what people don't realize is like, this is not health overall and public health in particular with transmission, you know, transmittable diseases like this, Um, this affects everybody. So if that person who doesn't have care, who's worried about, you know, making their own household bankrupt, doesn't go and take care of themselves, doesn't get the testing, continues to go to work. That is many, 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 many people's problem. Right. Mm-hmm. Not just theirs,
1: and you know, if someone if someone's younger and they're they get COVID symptoms but are afraid to seek health care, even if they have a relative that's older that's on Medicare, you know, it's still it's still a problem for that family unit because a the person that was making you know working age and making money they all of a sudden they're you know homesick and mm-hmm. you know even and then they could potentially infect someone that has health insurance, but they could also spread it even, even more. So, you know, there's a, I think, you know, I think all these things, but this is a system that we have. And these are the questions that are going to be brought up next year, you know, I mean, this is definitely all of this is on the ballot, you know, which it is means, on the ballot. So we choose wisely. Decision, yeah, we have to make a decision whether we want more health care and expanded access, which, you know, I, I think that for as for me as a physician, the more people feel free to co- go to the doctor, that's a good thing. I mean, first of all, um, it means that I can treat people instead of saying, I'm sorry, it's too far gone. And, you know, it's, that, it's a good thing to have more patients coming in earlier because we have the tools. We have all this advanced technology to uh, improve and preserve vision, but it needs to, sometimes there is such a thing as waiting too long where, diseases mm-hmm. such as diabetes can progress. And, you know, afford, <laughs> affording insulin, rationing insulin, no one should need to do that. That's, you know, that's a, a uh, you know, we are we, we blessed enough to have these medical innovations. So um, yeah. I, it's just, but we need to have people able to use them so that they don't, uh-huh. and if they use their insulin, then they don't get the diabetic eye disease. So then they can see, and then, you know, these problems don't even right. exist. That's it's all about preventative care is important and being able to go to the doctor and not and um, having some price transparency is important. And I think, you know, that's all a matter of how we the choices we make. You know, it's not these yep. aren't inevitable things. These are choices. And this is you know, we have the opportunity to vote for people that um, support health and there and or people that kind of. View it as secondary to other concerns, whatever that that might be. But I can tell you that if you're not healthy, you know nothing else of, matters. <laughs> nothing else really matters, you know. And whenever you've had, I know we've all had relatives sick in the hospital, and you know you just real it, it's sobering because you realize, uh, you know, how helpless you are without health, and so and how mm-hmm. you know that everything yep. follows from that. So.
0: Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And so I, I wanted to give you one last opportunity before we close out here to just to tell us a little bit more um, about potentially what is some of the things that happened in Florida in the coronavirus that were really troubling to you and any other parts of the story that you, you hadn't yet shared Florida. with us. But I know that when we talked previously, there was things going on in Florida that were really raising alarms for you. What were My,
1: the, the scariest thing I ever saw was um, the corruption of testing early on um, by uh, local gov- uh, Ron DeSantis, where we actually had a very, it, I was working with Sarasota County Health Department early on um, in the process. This was in March and we were getting tests and we had a free testing site. And then uh, the state swooped in, ordered an immediate halt to testing and then gave out massive amounts of taxpayer money in the contract to a doctor whose name is Eric Pantaleone, who's a disgraced uh, former pediatrician from Miami, who had already lost his Florida medical license um, because he was giving uh, AIDS patients sham cures and not actually treating their underlying virus at a time when there was real treatment. So this man had already failed, he, was, he had no experience in infectious disease, And yet he had won a contract for something like $65,000 a day um, to run testing. And I know it was uh, Sarasota County, but also somewhere up in Pensacola and elsewhere, other counties in the state. And he would essentially, this was when people were getting discouraged with tests that would take five weeks to get a result. He never Mm -hmm. told anyone their um, information. And so there was a, the state grabbed all this, we were doing fine locally, um, you know, struggling as everyone was in the country to get testing out, but it was a seizure of this and then just handing out of just pure corruption and cronyism. And also the other thing was that they were moving, uh, they were sending the test results to other states to avoid Florida, to evade Florida law about public health reporting. So (laughs) there was an effort to massage numbers and it was really ham-handed, and this was when the whole issue with Rebecca Jones count mm-hmm. counting the case and being forced to resign by Ron DeSantis happened. And this was all, and I observed this happening firsthand. I got a fax randomly from Tampa claiming to be the Sarasota County Health Department, but it was not. And I was on the phone with the Sarasota County Health Department at the time, and they demanded an immediate halt to testing. And this was, I mean, this was early on in the pandemic, and it was just once we got, uh, you know, I think they did a WFLA in um, Tampa did a very some good reporting on this about nursing home r- numbers and mm-hmm. this uh, the testing delays, but it was really just cronyism and and also you know uh, inappropriate um, uh, t- taking away lo- uh, local control from a department mm-hmm. that you know. Uh, which which was something that you know you'd think that republicans would be against but I don't, I don't, <laughs> oh I no know. no no
0: this is actually something that i nailed byron Donaldson on specific to this is that home rule seems really great and local control seems really great when it's things that they want or when they can kick mm-hmm. the can down the road essentially on something like masks right mm-hmm. um but when it comes to things that they themselves and their crony partners are going to make money on like you know, the, when it, they preempted a lot of environmental things, then suddenly home rule is something that they don't want. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, this is, I, I this was uh, one of the things that came up in my last debate, but anyway, so, so you're, you were seeing this, this kind of phenomena happen where they stopped the testing and they gave it to a crony partner that then sent the, the, the information, the testing outside of the state to avoid the tracking and the required uh, reporting by the state health department is that is that what you were you're saying Correct. to us?
1: They also they also moved the testing site randomly for no apparent reason <laughs> to different locations. So you had to find it. It was very. Hmm. I mean, the whole thing was very strange because they would move it at least around the county. They they just have pop up testing sites. You need to figure out where to get the test. So you know we would hmm. tell people, oh, get off at this exit. It's right there and then it would be gone, and they, they claimed that they had some reason for doing it, but I have, um, but yeah, it was, uh, and they kept shifting the labs that they would send the test to, sometimes to Louisiana, sometimes to Virginia, and the other thing they did was I was able initially to order coronavirus tests as a physician on my patients, <laughs> if they requested it or they were exposed. What they did was they took away control from me as a doctor that I was no longer allowed to order coronavirus tests. But that huh. this man Eric Pantaleone ordered all the coronavirus tests, and therefore I was not, um, I was not uh, eligible to see the results. I was not. Huh. It was so they were trying to hide the data by even taking away my right to um, order tests. So it was, it was quite, um, you know, I, I couldn't believe it when it was happening. It was not like anything I'd ever seen in this country, and I have worked mm-hmm. in, in third world countries, but. Uh, you know, it reminded me of uh, of when I worked in rural India. To be honest, and you would see, you know, yep. um, a classroom where the children had no textbooks, and then you go into the principal's office, and there'd be all these um, shrink wrap textbooks just stacked up so you know it was that that's what it reminded me of basically
0: yeah Um, and and that's what i was kind of alluding to earlier about this this kind of crony style politics these patronage networks that people build um that is the hallmark of corrupt and lesser sophisticated uh government systems and and it, it is why we have the rule of law because we're supposed to follow rules and protocols and procedures and processes in this country. And it's actually, that is a predicate for democracy because it's the only way that you get out of these patronage networks. It's the right. only way that you stop it. The way that other people have an, a voice in the democracy is if there is a place for them, because otherwise it is purely bought and sold. And you get things like a disgraced pediatrician in charge of testing for the state of Florida. <laughs> and, you know, and, and then the rest of everybody is out of the loop because that happens to be the preferred guy uh, in this crazy power network. Right, He was
1: also, instead of having boosting local officials who were, they were, I mean, very busy at the time, but you were saying that this one man could run 26 counties, which is clearly mm -hmm. it's almost like when I remember in Puerto Rico that we saw the first Puerto Rico was the first time we saw this happen where a hurricane hit, a natural thing and it was bad and the power was all down and then through patronage they said oh, this company in Montana that had one truck was going to be responsible for rewiring the entire island, which was, you know, I mean, it was, you know, and there was now you can say there was corruption and patronage in Puerto Rico too, but we clearly saw that the federal response was the same way. So I think we have a big choice about which way we want to run the society. And, you know, we, we have wonderful things like the post office. And, you know, we used to have the CDC. And protecting us so we didn't need to worry about tuberculosis and ebola and it wasn't Mm -hmm. part of our daily life these things weren't really part of our daily lives but now that we see this stuff falling apart you know the i mean one person you can't make an individual choice about green slime you know that canal is filled with it your boat is being destroyed you can't you know make a choice about red tide whether you can breathe the air outside so (laughs) We all have to work together and it's a lot of, profe- you know, it doesn't mean I'm going to individually as a citizen scientist take water samples. We have to have a, from septic systems, we have to have a, a network of, you know, a system, system based yep. approach. Yep. To yep. Florida.
0: And you're right. And I, I love that because that's actually something my opponent says all the time too. Well, my family is safe. My family is low risk. So I choose to not wear a mask.
1: That's, I mean, there's no that's not he. I, first of all, I don't think that's assuming a lot of things about his family. And I don't know of any family where at least one person isn't high risk in a, in a large enough family if you look at contacts. So I I, I don't know where he comes up with that, but
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the line (laughs) and that's his justification. And and, and I, you know, and the reason I went and got tested today is because in one of the debates, we were about three feet away from one another. And Mm -hmm. I called him on this. I said, well, you know, you're good for you for having your family be low risk. But the masks protect everybody around you, including me and my family. And I have vulnerable people in my family. he's like, oh, we're not that close.
1: Oh, yes, we are. You know, you have the moderator, you have the people running the cameras, you have the people in the audience, you have the people who work in the facility and you have uh, there's a chain of, you know, we're part of a society, we have to protect each other. Um, I hope that this is a wake-up call, uh, that we still need to, today's, this morning's events are a wake-up call to people, that we need to still take this seriously, but you know, it's hard to change minds, but Sometimes when the story gets big enough, it becomes people start believing
0: it. Uh, I hope you're right. I really do because I, I, I want nothing more than this to be taken care of, that we can come together, we can do the right thing, we can slow the spread, we wear masks, we wash hands, we social distance, we stay home when we can, we do what's necessary to curtail this pandemic And then we can start to build back our economy. And if you, for those of you that follow the podcast, you know that a couple of weeks ago, I did a podcast with Dr. James Galbraith out of University of Texas, who's an economist, a a very well-recognized economist. And he told us that, that we really cannot fundamentally get the economy started again until we get the pandemic under control. And it has nothing to do with all of these other factors of policy, but it's human behavior. If we don't feel comfortable and safe, if we don't trust that we're safe, then we're not going to to go back and engage in the economic activities that we used to going out, going to movies and all that kind of stuff.
1: And we've seen this twice in three or four years now with the red tide devastating the local economy and the green slime and the, um, covid now and it's that we can do everything to mitigate but ultimately you want people to come down here and enjoy the beach and that's going to keep our economy going and you know fishing and all these wonderful activities and the confidence to do that to book the next year's vacation depends on feeling of security and if, you know you can uh, you can deny it all you want and i mean i i was stubborn at first and i was going to the beach and my eyes were burning and i said nothing's <laughs> going to stop but uh, ultimately you do you you know you can't expect restaurants on the beach to succeed when there's red tide. And it's the right. same thing with coronavirus. I don't think even if restaurants are open, it doesn't people are not going to be going as much and just because they're they're hesitant, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so Exactly. Yeah. So I think we owe it to all our local businesses to get this under control. Right.
0: So let's close it out on there, but just before we leave, is there any other place or information or way that we can connect with you or support you in the efforts that you've been making on this? Well, I think the best thing to do is to uh,
1: just to make sure to wear a mask, to um, look up the, you can look up the WHO guidelines. Um, you know, CDC is political. You can look up also other, uh, the Florida COVID database. Um, Rebecca Jones is doing a pretty good job of um, uh, keeping track of this local uh, data um, the best she can and her website is FloridaCOvidaction.com and so that's a way to know you know how your local area is doing, how the county is doing and uh, how the schools are doing and to protect our children and such. So that's what I'd recommend at this point and um, but you know I, I can only, uh, fortunately, you can buy protective equipment everywhere, hand sanitizers available. This is all something we need to do together. And I think, you know, we can get through this winter and we can get into that as they most health officials say next, you know, the spring to summer, we're going to get vaccination on board. So for, for the vast majority of population. So we're sort of in a, a weird point in the marathon where we felt we were almost getting out of it, but now we might have to duck again, but we can keep by keeping masks and, and, and doing as much social distancing as possible, we really can help save our own economy. Because if we can control the virus, but with with masks, then we can keep things open and keep businesses going. And people will come see the numbers are low and come down here. It is possible to, you know, we're down, to, uh, you know, cases were down and now they're going back up, but we, our behavior will influence it. And I don't, you know, I think we need to look at helping everyone and, and all, around us, and it'll ultimately, um, you know, affect the economy of uh, this area for a long time. And the um, so, what we can doing a little can go a long way. So that's what I'd recommend at this point.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jesse McCann, for joining us. And I just love what you said there. Our behavior affects this. So if we make the choices to wear a mask, socially distance, wash our hands, hand sanitizer, we can make a difference uh, in stopping this virus. So thank you so much for joining us here today on Dr. Cindy Speaks. I really appreciate it. Have a good day, okay? All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Cindy Speaks. If you'd like to learn more about her campaign, go to cindybanyay.com or connect with her directly at vote at cindybanyay.com. We love connecting with people. Contents of this podcast are paid for and approved by friends of Sandy Banier.